You're listening to The Sourced Property Podcast with Stephen Moss and Chris Kirkwood. Hello and welcome to another Sourced Property Podcast. My name is Chris Kirkwood and I'm here with... Stephen Moss. And we are going to bring you another 20 minutes of fantastic property information. And Emma is waving at me because I completely forgot about producer Emma as well. So sorry about that, Emma. Hi, guys. (laughs) So to kick us off, we've got the news as usual. And this week, Steve's going to take care of the news. So over to you. I am. I'm going to tell you about a story that's popped up today where one in 10 rental properties listed on Zoopla specify no benefit tenants. It's quite a big story. It seems to be stirring a lot of uh, comments and a lot of uh, emotions from different angles. There seems to be agents and investors on one side, and there seems to be the likes of shelter and tenants on the other side. And It's an argument that's been going on for some time, let's be honest, but the statistics that have been put together by the National Housing Federation They've actually looked at the 86,000 properties that are on Zoopla and over 8,700 have come back to say no DSS. Typically, that's the term they use. So what are your thoughts on that, Chris? When you started to look at that story, I remembered seeing a couple of weeks ago that Shelter were thinking about taking people that had said that no, no DSS tenants could go into their property to court because they were viewing that as being discriminatory. Now, I have got experience of having a tenant that is on benefits. And I've got to say, out of every tenant that I've ever had, she was absolutely fantastic. She still is absolutely fantastic. Now, she wasn't the first person that we selected, but she was the most relevant person to take that property because it it suited her much better than the other people. And so my experience of it is that if you go through a thorough process with people, then you're going to find the right person at the end of the day anyway. I think you've got to look as well at the other side of things in terms of actually how are they going to police this because we talked about this earlier even if they remove no dss or no benefits from the adverts online and adverts in papers etc the reality of it is that when somebody comes in to rent a property they're going to have to go through referencing or some kind of process and at that point it's going to be clear that they're dss or benefit tenants now if you've got two or three tenants applying for that property and that's highlighted again that's fed back to the landlord and it's the landlord's decision and that's probably not going to change, is it? Because the landlord is going to ask, how are you going to pay for this property? And yeah. if you're a DSS tenant, now these two phrases you told me about earlier because I got them completely wrong. But if you're a DSS tenant, you pay your rent after you've been in the property, which is called paying your rent. Yeah, it's in arrears. So typically you're up to eight weeks and it depends in, in which area in the UK. It's down to two things. It's how quickly the tenant processes the application and it's how quickly the council release funds and, and their sort of backlog, staff workload, etc, etc. Whereas a private tenant pays their rent up front. Yeah, in advance, yeah. Right, so it's the landlord's, surely it's the landlord's right to know how their rent is going to get paid, at what point their rent is going to get paid. So if they just ask that question, how are you going to pay for rent, then they'll be able to work out whether they're a DSS tenant or not. And then if they're going to make the decision based on whether they're a DSS tenant, that's when they then decide that if somebody's going to pay in arrears, then they're not going to take that person. I think, you know, from my personal experience, I've had good benefit tenants and bad benefit tenants. And I don't think it affects the process in terms of when somebody's applying, because like you said, if they jump through the the hoops and they show you that they're caring, they're interested and they want to be in that property and they'll look after that property. A lot of the time, having a DSS or benefit tenant in place can actually be a big benefit, using that word a lot, but it could be a big benefit because you've got somebody in there that will typically stay in longer and you've also got somebody that will set up potentially payments directly to yourself. Years ago, sort of five to eight years ago, that was the big change in the market where previously, automatically, uh, a landlord could claim to get the rent paid to himself directly. 
or herself directly from the council and that changed there because they said it, it's Human Rights Act where the tenant should be paid the rent and then the tenant should pay the landlord the rent. And that's when this real big issue came in and that's when we started to see a big growth in people saying no DSS, no DSS. And it was purely down to the fact that what was happening was the council were paying the money to the tenant, the tenant would spend the money on other things and then the landlord was in arrears. You know, so that's what's created this and that's what, where the increase has started to happen. And landlords can still get rent paid directly to them at the moment, right? They can do, but they have to prove that the tenant is not able to manage their money or able to pay them directly. Or the tenant has to request Request, it. So the landlord can't request it, which is what happened in the past. Now the tenant has to request it, and then it can come straight through to the landlord. However, with the new benefit system that's coming out, that is going to get changed again. My understanding of it is that the money has to get paid directly to the tenant, and we go back to that old system where the tenant then has to pay the landlord. Yeah, universal credit basically is looking at starting the system again, which just caused more problems. It wasn't particularly broke previously where the money got paid to the landlord. The landlord knew every month they were getting paid. In some respects as well, it was less stress on the tenants because if a tenant is short on money or tight on money that month and suddenly they get £500 into their account, it's that danger of, well, I'll spend that and I'll try and put it back or I'll try and work something out with the landlord. It's the temptation, isn't it? Temptation, exactly. You're removing that from the process by paying it directly. And then if they use that money and then they get into trouble with you and then they've got to go on to a high interest short-term loan, then that's a, that's a situation that sounds like it could quite easily spiral out of control. Well, we're very fortunate because obviously if we get any of our tenants in arrears, we send around producer M. So she's a 100% success rate. She can just shout at them, can't she? They'll yeah, exactly. probably hear her from here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So carrying on from the rental theme, the main part of this podcast today is going to be about rent to rent. Now, rent to rent has been going on for a long, long time. It really became popular maybe six or seven years ago. Would you agree with that in terms of used as a property strategy? Yeah, I think it became a lot more mainstream then, didn't it? People after the crash and the sort of no money down deals started to disappear, people were looking at different ways and kind of out the phoenix, out the ashes, they say, came rent to rent. And isn't that when you jumped into it? Absolutely, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, the bandwagon went past and I jumped straight on. But before that, rent to rent's been a strategy that's been used in commercial for a long time. It has, yeah. yeah. And so do you want to, because I'm going to talk a lot about rent to rent for the rest of the podcast, how does rent to rent work with commercial? What have people done in the past? Well, probably the most successful company that do rent to rent and that most people would have heard of are WeWork. And they're actually probably one of the youngest companies as well. So we work our serviced offices. So they will typically take a prime location office, very swanky, lots of glass, good location, and then they'll split it up into smaller offices. They'll rent it off the landlord, and then they will take rent from small companies who are looking for you know, main location offices, good postcodes, lots of networking opportunities, and do that. And, and they've gone to, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but hundreds of billions of pounds in valuation in the last, I think it's about eight years. So they're at the top of the tree in terms of what they're achieving with rent to rent. So renting a big office space and then breaking it up into smaller units and then renting out the smaller units has been done for a long time. Yep. And then since the crash, like you said, that's been turned over to residential and that's been applied to residential. So the two residential strategies or the two main residential strategies for rent to rent are serviced accommodation, which you've probably heard of, and HMO, which you've probably heard of. So the strategy is you find a property that's on the rental market, you make an offer to that landlord to take it off their hands for between three and five years, and then you either use it as serviced accommodation or you use it as a HMO. So serviced accommodation, that's something else that's been big since the crash? Yeah, definitely. It's, I think, again, if you look at the 
the top of the tree, your serviced accommodation is your Airbnb, isn't it? They've kind of brought it to a more mainstream view of how property investors and landlords can double, triple, quadruple returns on properties that they've had for some time. And in some occasions, not even been able to let them out fully. So you might have a HMO that you've been struggling to let every room and then suddenly you do part of it as serviced accommodation and you're able to fill it a lot more often and, and obviously at a higher rate per night. And because what you're trying to do is the rent to rent operator, you're trying to make sure that you make a margin because you're, you've guaranteed the rent to the person that owns the property. So you need to make more money out of that property in order to pay the person that owns the property and take money home yourself. So that's why you probably wouldn't, in most cases, just do it as a standard rental because you're probably paying market value or very close to market value to rent the property off the owner. So you need to find a constructive, imaginative strategy that is going to make sure that you make your margin. How would you go about in terms of choosing which strategy to use? You know, you've talked about the service accommodation as HMO. When you're approaching a potential rent to rent, how would you go about which strategy you would choose and would you ever mix them? It completely depends on the location of the property. Now, whether you mix them, I've heard this question quite a lot. I've never mixed them. I've never done serviced accommodation. I've never taught anybody to do rent to rent HMO and they've done serviced accommodation and mixed it up. However, I might be tempted to do it in one very specific circumstance with HMO. And that's at the end of a contract when the contract's winding down in order to make sure you maximize the amount of money when the owner's asked for the property back. Right, okay. So that's the term winding down when the owner's asked for the property back. It's the term that I use, yeah. Okay. So yeah, let's just say that that's industry generic now because yeah. I've said so. It'll be on Wikipedia by the end of the day, <laughs> definitely. So serviced accommodation or HMO, what do you choose? Well, you need to check your markets, don't you? So how would you check a serviced accommodation market if you were going to look to put serviced accommodation in an area? Yeah, I think firstly, I'd look personally on the likes of Airbnb, websites like that, similar to that, that will show me either competition in the area, who else is doing it, how much demand there is. And um, a lot of things I hear as well from rent to rent is about people putting up adverts before they've actually taken the property to test the market. Is that something that you've tried before and had any experience with? Well, I haven't tried it on Airbnb because I don't do service accommodation. However, the other thing that Airbnb will give you is the price that people are paying for properties that are in your area. So you'll be able to get a really good picture of how much money you could potentially make off that property. With HMO, you probably go to a website called Spare Room and Spare Room gives you all of your data in terms of how many rooms are available in your area, how many people are looking in your area. And then if you follow a room that's around the property that you're looking at, you go back there maybe every day, you'll be able to see how quickly that property rents because it'll only be taken out of spare room once it's rented. Okay, and so in terms of finding properties and sourcing good rent-to-rent properties, what sort of tips and advice would you give to people to identify and source good rent-to-rent properties? You know, this is brilliant. So I started out with rent-to-rent and the default setting for every single agent that I originally talked to when I told them about rent to rent was that they thought I was competition and they absolutely hated me. That's not changed, surely. No, well, it's gone broader than just agents now. Now everybody oh, right. hates me. But however, now that I've, I have to go to agents and talk about normal property deals, when all I'm trying to do is purchase a property off an agent, it seems like a breath of fresh air. It's such a pleasant experience in comparison to sourcing rent to rent. Now, it makes me laugh when people come into the property industry and they're worried about talking to agents. And I genuinely think it would be beneficial for everybody to try sourcing rent to rent as the first thing that you do, because you've really got to break down barriers. You've got to be very persistent and you've got to build rapport with that agent in order to just get your foot in the door, never mind have a conversation with them. So in terms of finding properties, there's two main ways you can go. You can go through agents and you can go direct to vendor. Now through agents, 
Roughly speaking, agents are more expensive because they'll have their fees, they'll be more determined to make you pay a deposit. However, they'll have much more access to property. Yeah. So in general, you'll get more deals through agents. However, it'll be more expensive. Yeah. I mean, it's estimated about, what, 95% of available properties are, are through agents. So I suppose going direct to vendor, it's going to be a lot harder to find those sort of properties and, and to get those as well. However, there is still a way. Okay. So you can use all the same portals. You can use stuff like Rightmove. And then once you've found a property that in terms of layout and in terms of financials, both work out, you can then go to land registry, you can find who owns that property, and then you can start communicating with that person directly. So when I first started, the first property I ever got was through an agent. Well, it, I went to the agent first because I saw it on Rightmove and I, you know, I pushed my charm button. I was absolutely, you know, on it. You got knocked back, didn't you? I totally knocked back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Within seconds. Yeah. And their, their line to me was, no, none of our landlords are going to be interested in that kind of offering. So I thought, okay, let's go direct to vendor. So I went to Land Registry. I found out the name of the person. I sent them a letter because what you get through Land Registry is their, their name and their home address. So not that, that property address, their home address. Is there a cost to get this off Land Registry? There is, yes. It's three pounds. Three pounds. Wow. Three pounds per time. So if you're gonna if you're gonna do lots, obviously it's gonna it's gonna add up. But I used it, and that was probably one of the first times that I'd used that strategy, going direct to vendor. Sent the letter off to them, and they got in touch with me with I think it was within 24 hours for that first one, and they were really happy with the offering. They thought it was fantastic. It was exactly what they were looking for because they wanted long term security of rental income for their property. And so I took that property off the agent but also I rented it from that landlord. Now I went back to the agent and said, look, I've taken this property. I don't want to work against you. I want to work with you. Yep. There's a way that we can work together. And they said to me, yet again, none of our landlords are going to be interested in that kind really? of thing. Straight away. Wow. Now about three or four weeks later, I then found another property with the same agent. Wow, went, they must hate you. Went back to them. Absolutely hate you. Same thing. I went like 11 out of 10 in charm. Wow. I know. You've not seen 11 out of 10. No, no, no. It scares me. <laughs> and exactly the same thing. None of our landlords are going to be interested in that kind of thing, which I started to get a little bit frustrated with. But then it, I did exactly the same thing. I went direct to vendor and I got that property. So now I've taken two properties off that agent. Went back a third time, exactly the same thing. None of our landlords are going to be interested. So at a point, some agents just aren't going to work with you. I was going to say, I mean, that's an experience. That's probably maybe an older or independent agent, I imagine, that... You know, he's stuck in a certain way, whereas there must be a lot of agents that are a little bit more savvy to this and willing to potentially work with you to help you and obviously help them. Because in reality, you know, if an agent puts that in place, that's the agent gets a fee for three years if, if that's your contract term, which is a fantastic fee. And all the risk and all the maintenance and everything else is on your head. But not only that, so as one of our offices, we've got somebody who used to be an estate agent. And I think she told me that one person can manage 100 properties for rental. Now, if you think about it, if I've got the rent to rent contract, because I'm doing all of the management, that means that that agent can now have 110, 120 properties. Yeah but still only have one person managing them because I'm taking care of all the management. Yep. So the agents make more money as well. Yep. Now, of course, I explained all of this to them, but some people just don't want to listen. Now, this agent, they were independent, you're right, and they were really, really successful. So they've made a lot of money in the last five to 10 years. Right. Now, the ones that probably are going to be a little bit more receptive are either, for I found, national agents yeah. Or agents that are a little bit more open to trying new strategies. Yeah. So they haven't made a, a huge amount of money over the last few years. 
Now you get into them and yeah, absolutely, it all comes down to the person. If they'll just sit down and listen to you yeah. and listen to it objectively, then I find that agents are actually really, really beneficial. Okay, fantastic. And is there another way that you suggest in terms of finding vendors directly? Because obviously agents, we know hold a lot of stock and we know we can go through the land registry as you've explained, but what other ways are the direct to vendor that you would uh, recommend to people looking to use this strategy? Well, look, I go on Facebook a lot. And really? so yeah. my first thing is always going to be networking. Because if you're just starting up in property, and most people that are getting into rent-to-rent are just starting up, the first thing that everybody should utilize is their existing network. Now, let's say, for argument's sake, you've got 300 friends on Facebook. How many of those friends have you actually talked to at some point about property? How many of them do you know either own property or are looking to rent out property? Because I guarantee there's going to be at least a few in there that have got property and that you could potentially take a deal from. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting as well. One of the things that I've found with rent to rent and particularly working with you, Chris, is that in the past, people have always said to me about the HMO list that you can get from the councils. So for any kind of new listeners or people that haven't heard this before, you can actually write to the council or you can go, some have it online where you can actually go to them and say, you know, I'd like a list of all the HMO owners in my area and they'll provide you with this list and people have hit that for rent to rent and for me that doesn't work in terms of they're already renting a property out at potentially maximum amount or maximum level the margins so, going in their pocket already exactly yeah so you know that's probably a tip really for people to avoid wasting time in that area i imagine a lot of the properties that you use for, for rent to rent are completely different not as you said before not hmos not service accommodation but you're starting off and you're converting it to that exactly so to put the mark to make sure that the margin goes in my pocket what I do is I look for properties that aren't currently HMO. I'll give them a three to five year term with a guaranteed rent. I'll know how much money I'm going to make out of it. And then I will take care of the conversion to turn their property into a HMO. Are you not concerned with obviously legislation's changing, costs are potentially going up for HMOs? Does that not worry you, particularly when you're tying yourself into a three-year agreement? Yeah, it's a good question, but not really. Because so long as you source the right property, you make so much margin that it covers all sort of eventuality. So there's been a recent change on the 1st of October where the licensing requirement is different now. So when I first started rent to rent HMO, the licensing requirement was three or more stories and five or more people would require a license. And now it's changed to five or more people regardless of how many stories they're on. So therefore, more properties need a HMO license. So we've just had some quotes done. The last quote, which included installing the master key system, was £3,700. Now, in my area, I usually generate between £900 and £1,200 profit per calendar month. Per property. Per property. Yeah. Okay. So it's going to wipe out a little bit of our return on investment, but really only for three or four months. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. And in terms of obviously, you know, when you've actually found a property or you found an opportunity, you've pitched it to either the agent or the vendor direct, what's the next step in terms of securing it and actually making this a reality of owning a rent-to-rent? So obviously you need to get a contract in place with the owner or with the agent if it's going to go through the agent. So the contract that we use when we're going direct to vendor is a common law tenancy agreement and we have that as a rent guarantee agreement. So it makes sure that everything that's broken out is rent. With serviced accommodation, it's slightly different. You'll probably use a management agreement with serviced accommodation because in HMO, the income that you generate is rent. Whereas in serviced accommodation, the income that you generate isn't classed as rent, so therefore is subject to VAT. So you don't need the same contract for serviced accommodation as you do for HMO. But obviously, if there's a chance that you cannot pay VAT, you need to make sure that you're doing it correctly for HMO. 
Yeah, so you're getting structured correctly. Okay, so you've talked a little bit about how there are a lot of opportunities for this. There's obviously good demand if you're choosing the right area and there's nice, simple ways to research that and find that. And you talked about potentially the level of income that you can generate. Give the listeners what are the top three problems that you come across by running a rent to rent What are the, the three main things that either really annoy you or just generally in the industry you find the problems? You know what? There's one thing that has historically really wound me up and that's tenants locking themselves out of rooms. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So we had one guy who he moved over to the UK from uh, Portugal. He moved on the Saturday. He started his job on Monday morning and he locked himself out of his room. He locked himself out of his room at eight o'clock on Monday morning, had to walk into work, which was about a mile, in his gym jams, introduce himself to all of the people in his office for the first time in his pyjamas, call me and then get me so to, get me to let him into the house. your first job or your second job? <laughs> I don't wear gym jams, so it can't be me. No. Okay. <laughs> but however, what we've done is we've taken that as a learning opportunity. And now what we do is we put a master key, uh, not a master key, uh, a safe lock yep. on the outside of the house. Um, I can't remember what the safe lock is that is endorsed by the police and therefore accepted by the insurance companies but we'll put that in the show notes producer m if you remind me at the end so we put that one on the outside of the house and we put a safe lock on the inside of the house for each room so now if somebody locks themselves out of the out of the house they can get into the house because there's a safe lock on the outside yeah but if they're in the house and they've locked themselves out of the room they can then get a key to their room but importantly not a key to anybody else's room yeah and then the next time the cleaners go in the cleaners then just change the locking code so that's really been the biggest bugbear and changing that and putting the key locks in was absolutely fantastic yeah so it's really kind of learning from mistakes that have gone on as you've managed properties and Absolutely. Uh, you've picked up, yeah. Okay. And then another big learning that we had was right at the beginning when we're sourcing property, trying to explain to an estate agent using terms like rent to rent just doesn't work. It's not something that you can do. Their barriers go up very, very quickly. So the sentence that we've come up with is when we talk to an agent, what we want to do is we want to get them to the property as soon as possible. We want a face-to-face meeting in the property because having a face-to-face meeting with them builds rapport much, much quicker and they're much more likely to listen to your offering. But how do you get to that point? So what you need to do is when you call them up and you say, you know, I'm interested in this property. Can we arrange a viewing, please? And they'll say, uh, you know, yes, the property is still available. You say, right, great. Is the landlord happy with a long-term corporate let? That is an absolutely killer phrase. Because for one, it says that you're concerned about whether the landlord's happy or not. Yep. So that frames it really nicely. Yep. Long-term corporate let. Well, long-term is obviously going to be beneficial to the landlord because they're going to have security over having their rent paid. And a corporate let, well, it doesn't really matter, but that's exactly what you're going to do. And so at that point, you should get the viewing and then you can go and talk to the landlord face, uh, talk to the agent face-to-face. I suppose as well with that, mentioning the word corporate, that probably in the agent's mind, it positions it that Barclays want to let it or you know, some huge blue chip company. Because that's typically what you think when you think corporate let, isn't it? So that's quite a good way of positioning yourself to get past that first hurdle and obviously start the, the negotiations. Absolutely, yeah. So I hope this helps you out with Rent to Rent. There's obviously loads and loads to talk about. If anybody wants to send me a message, get in touch and ask me any questions, then absolutely please feel free. Enjoy. So with rent to rent you can probably hear that there's lots and lots to organize and so my tip would be to use a CRM system. If you're going to be sending out letters to landlords, you're going to be sending out maybe 5 or 10 a week. Now we have four letters 
a series of four letters over four weeks that we send. And so that whole process can quickly become quite complex. Therefore, what we use is a, a CRM system called Less Annoying CRM. The pipelines and the functionality in it are absolutely fantastic. So that would be our tip, Less Annoying CRM for this week. Thank you for listening to the Sourced Property Podcast. Visit sourced.co to search thousands of investment properties 